This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jim, we've done it again. <laughs> what is it this time, Richard? <laughs> we've come up with something new for this podcast that we haven't tried before. It seems like we've done a lot of that lately. Yeah, we've had a number of new ideas and different ways of, of kind of changing up how do we fix it. And today, we're going to be doing something different, playing excerpts from one of our favorite podcasts. And it's about why so many of us have gaps in our perception, how we understand things to be true that aren't necessarily true. Our huge perception gaps. Our guest today, Samantha Lane Perfoss. And the news, by definition, like how you define newsworthiness, is the outlier events. The problem with that is if that's all you see constantly, you begin to believe that that is the norm. You're going to see a headline of terrorist attack happen today. You're not going to see a headline saying, good news, no terrorism today. <laughs> Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Part of our agenda on how do we fix it is to look at ideas that challenge the way we think. And we think that we and everybody often get locked into perspectives on the world that don't necessarily fit reality. So we want to challenge ourselves, we want to challenge listeners to look at the world a little differently, even if it sometimes it causes a bit of discomfort. Yeah, get into your discomfort zone. This week we look at perception gaps, what we often get wrong when we think about the world. Perception Gaps is also the name of a new myth-busting podcast. Host Samantha Lane Perfoss of the Christian Science Monitor joins us via Skype from Boston. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Sam, what's the point of your show? There are things that we perceived to be true based on our own experiences, the information that we get that are simply not. And I think challenging each person to sort of think about these misperceptions that exist as a society and on an individual level begins to peel back these layers of why we believe what we believe and some of the consequences of that, both positive and negative. How, how come we can't summarize the point of <laughs> the mission of our show so succinctly? Know, no, that's great. It's probably because you've been challenged in your newsroom. Why do we need this show? <laughs> exactly. Many, many times. So let's pick up right where we left off in our last episode, the opioid crisis. It's a national health emergency 
But there's another substance that kills twice as many people per year. What is it? It is actually alcohol. So full disclosure, my husband works in substance abuse prevention, and we were talking a lot about the opioid epidemic. And yes, there is this huge focus on opioids for good reason. They are on the rise. But at the same time, there are actually other substances such as alcohol that are killing many more people per year. Um, And I just thought that was fascinating because you never hear about alcohol. That is fascinating. And it indicates that maybe we in the media are talking too much about the opioid crisis at the expense of some of these other crucial problems. It sort of seems that way. And it may not be that we're talking too much about it, but we're not talking enough about the bigger context. And in this episode, we talk about addiction and prevention and treatment. On your latest episode of Perception Gap, Samantha, you spoke with former drug czar Michael Botticelli, who says we have to look at recovery as well as addiction. When you look at polling data, a significant portion of people don't believe that treatment works, that don't believe that recovery is possible. And, and I, I think it's often because they don't hear or see, um, nor do we as a society celebrate uh, people's recovery and you know um, I, I work at a healthcare institution when I uh, you know where I see people getting better on a daily basis and see the profound change in people's lives when we give them good care filled with uh, empathy and compassion. That's Michael Botticelli who was the drug czar in the Obama administration and he has an interesting personal story to tell about himself, doesn't he, Sam? He does. Um, Yes, he was the drug czar under the Obama administration and does a ton of work in prevention and treatment, but he's also in recovery himself. He struggled with alcohol addiction um, when he was younger, and he shares his personal story in the podcast about how he sort of went through that journey of addiction and eventually getting arrested and meeting the criminal justice system and then having to go into treatment and how he himself is now in recovery. And I think that gives him such an amazing perspective. On this same episode, you had a fascinating interview with a drug prevention specialist in Avon, Massachusetts, which is a small, mostly white working class suburb outside of Boston. Her name is Amanda Decker, and she works with young people. We're going to play a little clip from that portion of the podcast. What is the biggest substance issue facing youth today? Hands down, alcohol. Um, And it's been that way for years. Just in our community, when I first started, we had 47% of youth uh, in grades 9 through 12 drinking on a regular basis, and that's uh, within the last 30 days. In the community that I'm in, we were very fortunate to get something called drug-free communities funding, which is funding uh, specifically for youth substance use prevention. And it's been eight years since I've been with them personally, and today that number is down to 13% of youth in grades 9 through 12 in that community drinking on a regular basis. So, I mean, amazing, significant progress has been made. So young people are susceptible to negative peer pressure. We all know that. But they're also susceptible to positive peer pressure. So when a young person goes into a room and their belief is everyone is drinking, 
they are more likely to decide to drink themselves. Even though there's such a high number, 47% of kids that were drinking, we wanted to start talking about the 53% that were not drinking. And what we did is we created uh, a bunch of media campaigns, uh, focus groups, just ways to get the message out. There are many kids in your school that are making healthy decisions and really letting them know it's okay to say, I don't want to drink. And um, young people thought that 80% of their peers were drinking, and that's just the culture. And we worked really hard to change that and measure that perception over the years. And um, as that perception decreased and kids began to believe that not everyone drinks, the actual rates of use decreased as well. Why do you think that misperception existed in the first place? Like, why did they think everyone was doing it, even though clearly that wasn't the case? I don't think it's very popular in our culture to stand up and say, hey, I was so sober last weekend. Um, We've created a culture where we kind of glamorize just partying and all that kind of thing. And I also think when a young person hears that message being spread by a few, a handful of people, they begin to think that's everyone. That's Amanda Decker in Avon, Massachusetts. And she says the focus on the opioid epidemic has kind of complicated her work. You know, her work is about primary prevention, teaching kids about drug and alcohol abuse before they become hooked. So if everybody's only talking about opioids and that's not the things that the kids are getting into, that may not be as helpful to her work. So, Sam, do you share our frustration that news coverage is so often about conflict and clashes rather than looking at, hey, what can we do with this information? Yeah, I mean, that that's the whole reason the, the monitor exists, <laughs> is to sort of challenge that approach that the news often takes. And the news, by definition, like how you define newsworthiness, is the outlier events. The problem with that is if that's all you see constantly, you begin to believe that that is the norm you're going to see a headline of terrorist attack happen today. You're not going to see a headline saying, good news, no terrorism today, <laughs> um, you know, and and that's a that's a tension that exists because how do we inform people of the trends that happen over time um, as opposed to just reporting on these singular events that become data points in our memory that paint this broad picture of what the norm is that is actually only based on sensationalized events. And too often, journalists just aren't very good at this. They often, with good intentions, exacerbate this problem. They don't ask that question, what is the baseline? What is, you know, how does this event fit in with long-term trends? So, you know, they don't even often think that that's a question they're supposed to ask. Well, and I think they do in many cases. The problem is that people don't like to click on those stories. Should reporters and journalists have a responsibility to report on what's going to make us better as a society? Or is it their responsibility to report on things that people will actually click on? Okay, Jim, let's switch gears. Here's another look at a different perception gap. So, Samantha, you looked at the polling on how we view crime as opposed to the reality of the numbers. What do they tell you? So when you look at crime in the U.S., it's really interesting because crime has gone down dramatically in the last 25 years. Depending on where you're looking at the numbers, it's either fallen 
50% between 1993 and 2016, or even 75% if you look at different statistics. But when you look at people's perceptions, it is completely opposite. Um, They've done so many surveys, about 17 Gallup surveys since the early 90s. And every year they find that six in 10 Americans think there's more crime in the U.S. compared with the year before. That just shows that what we think to be true is really completely opposite of the facts. And when people think something's true, it also affects how they vote, how they perceive the world, policies they support. One of the guests on your episode about high crimes and misperceptions, as you called it, is Nicole Rader of Mississippi State University. And she's been researching the fear of crime for about 20 years. One of the things she talks about is not just the role of news, but also the role of the fictional crime dramas. So fictional crime dramas are extremely popular right now. And so when you see things on television all the time, you assume that that is the reality of the situation. When I was reading your research, I saw that the biggest predictor is actually gender, with women being much more afraid than men. But women are actually less likely to be the victims of crime, which I thought was fascinating because women are always the victims, (laughs) like in TV, (laughs) in everything. So. Could you talk about that a little bit? We see in society that not only are women more afraid of crime, but also women are really the targets for kind of crime prevention campaigns. Mm. So if you think about women are told, don't go out late at night, don't go out without your friends, make sure that you do all of these different things. And men don't really get those same messages. And so... I have always been really interested in why we tell women to be more afraid of crime and we give them all of these tools to prevent crime from happening, but we are not actually telling them things that are helpful. So I think most people in general, both women and men, are afraid of random acts of violence. And we see a lot of those things on television, right? So um, whether you're watching crime shows or the news, most of those episodes and events involve random acts of violence. And what is interesting is that we really don't explain to Americans and women in particular that they are going to be hurt by people that they associate with. The person who is most likely to hurt you is not going to be a total stranger. It's going to be a boyfriend or an uncle or someone that you're friends with. So another way to be and feel safer is to get to know your neighbors. Trust and fear, says Nicole Rader, are opposites. Now, Sam, you also looked at the role played by police and the difference between their mission to reduce crime and very often the community's concern about fear of the police. Can you explain? Yeah, I think that police often have good intentions, but sometimes what's missed is that the way in which you're trying to achieve your goal, so for police trying to make a community safer, trying to make a community feel safer, um, sometimes if that's your goal, uh, there may be a better way to achieve it. So we talk about police who sort of have these police crackdowns and try to go into a community and clean up crime and and make it feel safer. But sometimes what unintentionally happens is that even though the actual crime has gone down because they are impacting it in a positive way, the fear goes up. One of the people you spoke to is criminologist Josh Hinkle. What did he tell you? So he actually brings up a a specific 
study that they do on broken window policing. So they went into this. I can't well, let me, remember. Let me, let me stop you for a minute, because not everyone understands this debate about broken windows policing. As I understand it, the idea really came to the fore in the 90s when this became the backbone of the New York City Police Department's approach to crime. The theory is, you know, if you walk down a street and there's broken windows, then other people aren't going to worry about cleaning up their broken windows and the problem's going to get worse. When you apply that to policing, if the police enforce laws against fairly minor crimes, like jumping over the turnstile at the subway or, you know, a yeah, that, smoke... that, that's a real New York one. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it, this was this was one right. of the things I looked at or graffiti or um, or smoking pot in public. Those are things, those minor crimes, when they enforced those minor crimes more aggressively, crime went down in general quite dramatically. At the same time, there's some legitimate reasons to be concerned about these policies, and there's been a lot of controversy about it. Have I got that right? Yeah, so I mean that's that's accurate. You know, if you this idea that if we can clean <laughs> you mean, up the smaller, wait, wait a minute, you mean Jim got it right? This is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> he did, <laughs> but um, but no, that's right. Josh and his team they went in and they sort of were trying to look at the effectiveness of this broken window policing in this specific area. But what they also took into account was people's perception and how safe did people feel. So the study that they did showed that crime in the areas that they targeted did go down. However, when you talk to the people who lived in those areas, they actually perceived crime to be going up because there were so many police all over the place. They assumed, oh, my gosh, why are the police here? It must be because there's a lot of crime. I don't feel safe. So even just two blocks away where they didn't do this crackdown and have this strong police presence, people felt safer, even though actually crime was still at the same rate. Part of the problem may be some people feel that the police are like this occupying force in their neighborhood, as opposed to being on their side. We're going to get a different take from a cop in just a moment. It's how do we fix it? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Back in just a moment with Samantha Lane Perfoss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Sam, one lovely moment in Perception Gaps 
comes from Perry Johnson, who's an African-American police captain, or was, in St. Louis. And as part of the outreach to the community, the cops in the city have an ice cream truck, right? They do, yes. Yeah. And, and he put up a sign saying, free hugs, hug a cop, get an ice cream. You know, as you're doing that, they forget who you are. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I get to give this guy a hug and I'm going to get some ice cream. And that, w- that was really cool because it took away the fear. And at the end of the day, you know, it didn't bother them, the uniform that I wore. So what Captain Johnson told you was that improving relationships with the community plays a vital role. I mean, we all kind of know this, but the way they make it work is really interesting. You got to get people to believe in you, and you got to get people to get beyond the uniform. Being an African American officer, you know, is it a little bit different? Yeah, it is, because you see things happening to people with the same culture as you that involve people within the same profession as you. So that makes me work even harder to convince those that are out there that, you know, hey, guess what? We're not all the same because we wear the same uniform. A lot of us are different. And one of the things that I tell people is, guess what? I have sons that look just like you, you know, and that that look just like me that, you know, can be subject to coming across a bad officer. And I worry about that just like you. Sometimes when people hear that, then it kind of clicks that, you know what, he's human just like us. Yeah, I am. I have some of the same worries that you do. So you tell me, how do we together, how do we combat these worries? How do we, how do we fix this? Perry Johnson, who says a lot of people are afraid, and it's up to the police to fix that fear. Another episode of Perception Gaps uh, that we want to share with listeners is called The Real Gun Tragedy. What is the biggest perception gap, Sam, about gun violence? When you talk to people about what they think the biggest problem in the U.S. is regarding gun violence, they're almost always going to say it's mass shootings. They're on the rise, school shootings, school's no longer safe. We should be afraid and we should take action, which, yes, mass shootings are terrifying. So so what, what are some of the facts? So... The reality is that mass shootings account for less than 1% of the gun violence in the U.S. Um, It is a very small fraction of the gun deaths that take place. Um, And the reality is that the majority of gun deaths in the U.S. are actually from suicide, which is something we don't really talk about in the news. One expert you talked to said that school shootings get a lot more coverage today than, than they used to. And uh, explain how that works. So I talked to Jamie Fox from Northeastern University in Boston, who is a criminologist. And one of the things that he said is that if you think about now compared to 30 years ago, the way we covered the news was very different. We, we didn't have 24-7 news cycles with just constant coverage. So if you look at what happens now when mass shootings happen, whether it's at a school or elsewhere, you have these giant satellite trucks showing up and they begin reporting almost nonstop for sometimes a week straight in the same location. You say that gun massacres certainly don't happen every day. Suicides do. And you spoke with Jennifer Stuber. Her husband committed suicide with a gun. A few years after her husband died, Jennifer Stuber decided to cold call the NRA. Here's part of your interview with her. What was your perception of the NRA before you made that call? 
And how did it change afterwards? Yeah, well, I think at the time that I made the call, I didn't have really, really strong views about the NRA, although, you know, they're basically a political lobbying organization that's very pro-firearm. But I had also known that there's a long history of the organization being involved in the promotion of firearm safety. And so when I reached out to them, I was really reaching out to them with um, kind of an open mind, but also expecting them to be like, uh, who the heck are you and why are you calling? (laughs) Um, And then I was surprised that actually the opposite is what happened. I just want to be clear that the National Rifle Association is one of a range of partners who are working together in Washington state. And really what we've done is like more than 45 partners in the state of Washington working together. And these are groups that wouldn't normally come together, but the reason they've come together is around a common goal of, you know, saving lives lost to suicide. And I think that really what's happened in sitting around this table together to develop a program called Safer Homes Suicide Aware. It's a campaign actually for the state of Washington is that we just learned a lot from each other. Um, And so I think, you know, that groups like the NRA and the Second Amendment Foundation honestly didn't know very much about suicide prevention. And I think that they were looking for a partner, you know, that they could trust, that they, they didn't feel was looking to take away or impede, you know, gun rights in any way. Um, They were looking for somebody who was really wanted to focus on you know, suicide prevention in terms of, you know, community-based education. And there's a lot of common ground there that I did not anticipate necessarily from the outset would be there. Well, and you said it's it's a lot of people that don't typically sit at the table together. And I guess specifically when you think about the NRA, they have a really bad rap. They're not perceived very highly by the liberal media and, you know, it's kind of become this, you know, tribal organization in a sense of some sides think that they're great and are pushing for Second Amendment rights, and the other side thinks they're the absolute worst who's responsible for all of the gun violence that we see. And both of those extremes are not accurate. So it's interesting to think that there is common ground and that the NRA can be part of that very important conversation that's happening. And if there are people that are willing to sit down together. You know, when you start talking to the people, you find is that it's not like they're boogeymen. Those perceptions aren't, they're not accurate. And you said that in this process, you actually found there is quite a bit of common ground between all the different groups. First and foremost, I would say that the common ground is that nobody wants people to die by firearm and nobody wants people to die by suicide. So, for example, we take our campaign into gun shows. We never thought in a million years when we started this work that we would be invited into these gun shows. And in fact, it's been the opposite. We are invited into all of them. We provide very, very tailored education. We get really real with people about what's going on in their lives and who they're concerned about and have they had any risks in the past? Have they lost people in the past? And um, I've had, you know, some of the best education I've ever had on the topic of suicide prevention has actually come from interacting with people at these gun shows because they share things that I never would have thought of. Um, It's the population, frankly, that's at highest risk, not people at gun shows per se, but we know that men, you know, 34 to 65, they die by suicide by the largest numbers and they disproportionately use firearms. And guess what? That's who's exactly at those gun shows. So there's very few people we talk to there who don't have some kind of direct experience with suicide. So Jennifer Stuber, I was riveted by that interview. You also talked to a New Hampshire gun shop owner. What did he tell you? He found out, I think in the span 
of a week that multiple people had purchased guns at his firearm store and committed suicide. And um, he would he was crushed because he said that they prided themselves on being a very aware gun shop where they they looked for sort of warning signs and they would shut down sales if they felt like there was anything out of the ordinary or that might lead them to believe that that person was you know looking for a firearm to either hurt themselves or someone else so for him it, it was sort of shocking that they missed so many people in such a short time span so he decided to do something about it he started to address suicide with gun owners and and it was really cool because what started as sort of a local effort to increase suicide prevention awareness um, became sort of a national effort um, of gun owners helping gun owners and talking about how can we support each other in this community and how do we address this huge pervasive issue. What I learned from your episode is that gun safety and even gun control is is much more complicated than simply passing laws that limit certain kinds of guns or make weapons more traceable. So, Sam, we're running out of time, but we did want to ask you a couple of things about other episodes of Perception Gaps. And one was called Poverty Progress. And this refers to the drop in global poverty as opposed to U.S. poverty. What's the perception gap there? Well, if you ask most people if poverty has, over the last you know 50 years, become worse, stayed the same, or gotten better, the vast majority of people are going to tell you that global poverty has gotten worse or stayed the same. And in reality, we've almost halved it. And that's incredible progress. And it means that the work that we're doing as a society is working, um, but we don't talk about it. So how do we celebrate the progress that we've made so we can sort of double down and continue to work on these, um, on, on reducing poverty even more through these strategies that are actually proving to be quite effective? You know, it's you're really singing our song here, Sam, because this has been a theme of of a bunch of how to burst we fix into it. song, Jim. Yes. <laughs> Sam Lane Perfas, the host of the wonderful podcast Perception Gaps. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? And thanks for having me. Always happy to share. Okay, Jim, there's something else new about this episode. We're not going to have a conversation. Richard, you're killing me here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked enough already. Well, and so much of Samantha's podcast is so fascinating. We want to leave room for that and still stay within our time limit. So yeah, we're going to get out of the way. Our listeners were going to just have to miss out on our brilliant analysis this time. We call it a blessing. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Day. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Music by Lou Stravinsky. And we are a production of Davies Content. Um, if you are interested in making a podcast or want to make your podcast sound better, get in touch. Our website is daviescontent.com. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.